0: Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to Burn It All Down. Lindsay Gibbs here. And first of all, so excited to be talking to you all. Um, It is September now. As some of you might know, we took the month of August off here at Burn It All Down. Um, We're back today, but with a special episode because co-host Jessica Luther has – her new book is out today, 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 today. today. <laughs> so I have with me uh, Jessica Luther, who you all know, um, freelance sports reporter and host of this podcast uh, in Austin, Texas, as well as Kavitha Davidson, who's the co-author of this book, and Kavitha is the the ho- host of. A- The Athletic's wonderful daily podcast, The Lead, and I believe she is back in New York, New York. So welcome. I am. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Lindsay. So excited uh, to be looking at your faces here on Zoom and to have just finished reading this book that I've been hearing about for years. The name of the book, I guess I should say, I'm doing so great here today. The name of the book is Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, uh, Dilemma of the Modern Fan. I want to start with asking both of you how you fell in love with sports and when was the first time you realized that sports were problematic? <laughs> there, that, when was the first time you felt a bit conflicted about this, uh, Kavita?
1: Um, the kind of short version of how I fell in love with sports. You know, my parents are immigrants from India. They moved to New York in 1981. Not really terribly big sports fans, but my mom fell in love with boxing and the Knicks. Um she loved Bernard King and eventually loved Patrick Ewing. So I remember having Knicks games on in the background when I was very young. Um you know, in the in the early in the early 90s. But really, like the moment that I fell in love with sports was, and we couldn't really afford to go to games, even though there's so especially in the 90s in New York, there was so much to go see. But I the first time I ever went to a live baseball game, the first time I, I set foot in old Yankee Stadium was a class trip in second grade, um, to the home opener against the Kansas City Royals, and it was Andy Pettit bobblehead day, and I still have that bobblehead. Um, and I just I, – I've never experienced anything like it. I fell in love with that feeling that, you know, when you're in a ballpark specifically and 57,000 people are cheering at the same time and you can feel that sound in your chest, oh. do you know what I mean? Like yes. <laughs> that <I do. laughs> feeling was so – I, I addictive. I just never felt anything like that before. And, you know, I was a hundred percent that person who went in like, what you know, what's this baseball thing? And like, if I could have, I would have come out with like a foam finger and like decked out in pinstripes, right? Um and and I've been, I guess, just chasing that feeling ever since and you know, the mid the mid to late nineties was a really good time to chase that feeling by being a Yankees fan. Um So yeah, but I just always it was, it was just really beautiful. Like, you know, Yankee Stadium in the South Bronx is such a microcosm of what makes New York great, um, of, you know, people speaking every language and people who, you know, of, of every skin color and, and every age group just kind of unified around this one thing. Um, and I found that really beautiful. So, yeah, that's that's how I became a sports fan. I couldn't tell you the first time I realized sports were problematic. Um I think professionally it, it's probably been a more um, concerted understanding and you know when I first really first became a sports writer it was uh, about half a year before Ray Rice um, Ray Rice's accusation and I think that you know we just saw everything kind of come to a head in 2014 um, about athletes being accused of things um, the NFL, covering up its concussion scandal. Like a lot of things happened in the span of a year that um, kind of brought up all of these conflicting things that we have and all of the ways that sports and our ethics and our politics intersect. So, um, but I, I do tell people, you know, kind of the first, one of the first times it'll always kind of be seared into my memory about, oh, like this really, sports really isn't a thing that's for me. Like it's not, I'm not supposed to be in this space, was I wrote a column about Derek Jeter um the day after his very last game. And you know, a lot of what I wrote was a lot of what I just told you about falling in love with the Yankees and, and kind of what Derek Jeter meant to me. It was the least controversial column I think I have ever written. It was literally just <laughs> Derek Jeter is good. Um, thank you for playing baseball for so long. Nothing political, nothing about um, you know, women's issues or domestic violence or anything. And one of the comments that I got was Kavitha because I mentioned that my parents are immigrants and you know they're cricket fans and not really baseball fans and that kind of thing. And one of the comments that I got was Kavitha now I realize why I disagree with everything that you say. You're 25, I was 25 at the time. Um and you're an Indian immigrant and you only know cricket and how how did you get a job writing about American sports other than affirmative action? And that was that mm-hmm. was kind of the first time I was like Okay, yeah, like people people don't think I'm American enough to be a sports fan or you know um and and that that brings up so many emotions in other people about just like literally my existing in this space. So I think that, you know, Jessica and I have both experienced being othered obviously and obviously you have as well, Lindsay. And I think that um, you know, I'll I'll always remember that comment for kind of keeping me going, but also just as a reminder that Um, you know, what we do rubs people the wrong way for a lot of reasons.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's so so funny now that I'm thinking about it. I think the three of us really kind of came onto the scene, the writing scene at a very similar time because it was around, I think the Ray Rice stuff was when I started branching out of just doing tennis writing because I'd just been doing tennis writing before that. And that's wild to think it's been six years now. Uh Yeah. (laughs) Jameis Winston
2: was seven years ago. Wow. this year. Yeah, which was mine. Um, was about to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was my, uh, when I started writing critically about sport, I guess. But I have a, so I have the sort of cliche story that I grew up with a dad who loved football a whole lot. He was a huge FSU fan and a huge Cowboys fan. And we had one television. This is the 80s. And there was one TV. And on the weekends, you watched what he was watching, and he taught me all about football, and I loved it deeply. And I think that just sort of branched into loving sports in general. I played basketball when I was in middle school. I'm tall, it was a center. I was six. I probably wasn't yet six feet, but I was taller than everybody else. And like my dad taught me to play basketball in our driveway, uh, so I have that kind of story. And then I say this all the time, but. I only applied to go to Florida State. That was the only place I wanted to go for college because I wanted to watch Florida State football. And I did. And bless my husband's heart. Aaron is like this like side character in my uh, in my podcast life. But uh, he didn't care anything about sports. And yet he went with me to New Orleans to the Superdome to watch FSU uh, win the national championship when we were in college. But I'm trying to think. When I figured, like, when I first started to think critically, because at that point in my life, I did not like. I wrote about this in my first book, like uh, Peter Warwick. We had there were issues with that Florida State team that I was willing to bend over backwards to explain away as a fan, and I can remember that feeling a lot. So to go from that to sort of how I approach sports now, I want to say it was probably tennis, like. Watching mm-hmm. Serena and Venus in tennis is probably a good guess on it. Like One of the first big pieces I ever wrote on my own blog that blew up was about Serena and whether or not she was a costume. It was when Caroline Wozniacki m- made fun of her, which I know Serena was okay with. But I wrote a blog post about how Serena isn't, Williams is not a costume. And that was like the first big thing I ever wrote that like went around the internet. I'd never experienced that before. Uh, so that's my guess gut feeling about it. But I don't
1: know. How did I get like this is a good question. <laughs> I don't think I can answer. <laughs> That's actually – I I had never – we've done so many of these interviews and this is the first time me hearing you say that. I realized that – I think the first time I wrote on my stupid little blog that nobody read when I was 20 years old and had a blog spot, you know what I mean? I wrote a post about um, about Serena – the, the way that the media was attacking Serena after her her blow-up at the 2009 US Open. Um, and basically, I wrote about how she's being portrayed as an angry black woman. And we never, you know, all the things that we talk about whenever this happens, and, you know, nobody ever criticizes Djokovic or whatever. And I, I think that might have been the first time that I wrote something that obviously only I read, but something <laughs> along those lines um and i I wouldn't you know it doesn't surprise me that it would be serena williams to bring all of those issues to the surface for us well i can remember and i
2: don't i think it was 2007 and maybe Lindsay remembers this better but serena went away for a little bit and then she came back and she won the australian open and she was a little bit heavier than she had been when she went away and she came back unranked i want to say is this right and Mm -hmm. then she just tore through that tournament and won the Grand Slam and I will never forget I, I do remember this really well every single time she stepped on court they had to talk about how much she weighed and that she wasn't fit and could she do it again and I just remember like talking to the TV because I was so pissed at how they were talking about her so I definitely have been that kind of fan who like talks back to the TV and I definitely remember, Feeling so angry on her behalf because I was like, she she is now in the semifinals. Like, at what point is this conversation over? Which it wasn't until she actually won the whole thing. Uh, and I don't, e- it wasn't even over then. Let's
1: be honest. And, and then we'd have just have that same conversation every year for, <laughs> until she retires. <laughs> yeah, it's geez. still
0: going. So the book is a series of I think 14, 14 or fifteen essays chapters delving into different issues within sports that if you are a progressive thinking fan of any of any sort, give you pause at times and make you kind of question Um, just in general, because I know so listeners to this podcast are People who deal with these quandaries a lot, like this, you've probably done a lot of interviews with uh, some audience where these are some new ideas, but that's probably not our listeners. So I want to ask: When you, how did you come to this idea for a book? And I guess why did you decide to organize it this way? I think people will be interested in a little bit behind the scenes of how this how how this came together. Jess, do you want to start? Yeah. So I I had a friend. Years ago
2: now mentioned that he would like to see a, me write about problems in sports kind of book. And that was just like sitting in my brain. And then, Kavitha, I don't know if you remember, like, I can't remember the specific moment, but she and I were joking about those, like, how to... How to talk about sports with your boyfriend who loves them when you don't or like whatever, you know, (laughs) how to talk about the Super Bowl. How to fake it
1: at a Super Super Bowl Bowl party party or something like that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And so like the initial idea was almost a joke response, like how to talk to your boyfriend when he doesn't understand basketball or like that kind of feeling. And. It's so hard to like pinpoint how all of this changed. I mean, we've been doing this for years. Books take a really long time. And so, you know, we took it to UT Press and we have this brilliant editor, Casey, uh, credit to him forever. And he probably was the one that like steered us to think about how we wanted to structure the book and like what topics we wanted to do. But, you know, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, every chapter title has something similar how to i wish i had the book in front of me i don't even know the chapter titles but like how to i do there it is (laughs) i'm actually looking at the book across the room from me but
0: forgiving the doper you love cheering for a team with a race or racist mascot you're right it has a little bit that how how to yeah um, the, the titles yeah it was originally called how to love sports when they don't love you back
2: but how is hard was a really hard thing to answer when you're talking about systemic issues and but you're speaking to individuals uh, and everyone's drawing their own lines. And so we didn't want to repeat in every single chapter. The way to do it is for every individual to figure out for themselves like that. That was a repetitive thing. So I guess I would guess that it was probably Casey as a good editor, like steering us once we brought this pretty general idea to him. And I think we picked the topics based on things we – either cared about or thought were interesting or were things that we knew were specifically um, um, things we could really hone in on through sport. Kavitha, what's your memory of this? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, we didn't write anything in sequence. We didn't have a sequence, frankly. Um, a lot of the book just what now that we've had like a little bit of time to reflect, even though it's been a wild year already, um the book evolved so much in the process of making the book, right? Because like Jessica said, it started as this kind of like, we were just fed up, frankly, and pissed off. And we wanted, and we were just like, we should just write like a snarky book, you know, about, you know, men who know nothing about sports and still treat women this way and all of that. But it evolved so much from that it was originally a how to. And then we also realized in that that it it's really hard to make solution, like prescribed solutions for these things. Because as Jessica said, these are systemic things. But also on the individual level, the way that these issues affect us, the way we react to them is so varied. There isn't just one prescription or one solution for that. Um, But yeah, it was definitely Casey who figured out chapter transition and what should go where and what made sense to put to put where and everything like that. And I don't think that I like, I had no expertise or saying that, like, you know, like, how do you how do you really? um, How do you decide that kind of thing? You have a good editor. Yeah, I mean,
2: one of the last things that happened with the book was we put the chapters in order. So we had a different order that um, because this is a university press, it actually went out to anonymous readers. And we got feedback, Uh, we had to do it that way. And Because then the press, some board of university professors, I actually don't even know, they have to approve it. It's like it's peer review. Yeah. Yeah. And so you do a peer review and then these people that are associated with the university actually approve it after that. And so we had a totally different order for the chapters at peer review point. And then Casey was like, this isn't flowing right. We need to fix this. So that's like actually one of the last things that happened with the book was getting that flow right
0: from topic to topic. That's amazing. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, so I love the book, everyone, and I know I'm biased, but <laughs> I, I honestly didn't expect to learn that much because, uh, and that's no insult to either of you, but it's just because I. Uh, this is your space. Yeah, this like, is my yeah. space. <laughs> yeah. But, but I did, and I think it just it, hmm. um, it really. And it wasn't even just just learning; it was just the putting the things back to back. And I think it made it so clear that sometimes it seems like all these problems are different, um, but hmm. there there's a root of all of this that's the same. You know, uh, <laughs> like my the- dog is it just popped up and could be is very <laughs> excited to see Mo. Jess is over because Jess sees um, Mo all the time. I was like, "Oh, there's Mo." What uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> One of the other last things that we did in the copy edit process was we had to do the work of saying, as we talked about in chapter four, like we had to do the, Mm -hmm. like we had someone who read it and said, hey, this is connected to this chapter and this is over here and this is over here so that um, we could tell the reader, like we could signpost for people reading like, yeah, and this is tied to this other thing and this is tied to this other thing because so much of what we talk about, like you said, is... It's the same shit in sports, right and they just man- it manifests in different ways and so it's how it manifests that, that yeah. was part of the work right at the end too was making sure we were making those connections really obvious,
0: yeah, and I think you did a really, really good job with this. I think it'll be it it's a good it's a good the perfect mix I think of being accessible to people who. Don't spend way too much time thinking about these issues. Like the three of us. Well, Lindsay, that's actually like when you
1: when you said you learned something. That actually felt really. That (laughs) that means so much, yes. Because obviously, this is your space, but also I think one of the challenges, um, in writing a book like this, and one of the challenges just in sports media in general is that what we. Do and cover and watch is so jargony and can be extremely alienating to just a casual fan or even just someone who's interested in these issues and might not can even consider themselves a sports fan. Um, and this is something that I deal with in in my show. You know, it's a daily show and we focus on like sports storytelling. But you know, at one point, do you have to explain things for a more mass audience? And at what point are you alienating hardcore sports fans? Right. So for this book, you know, I think that. I, I have definitely thought about you know if we have friends like Lindsay or you know n- multiple friends that we have in the industry you know would they get value out of out of this because I do think that if you spend every day of your life as as Lindsay you do and and Jessica and I do covering these things you know it it is hard to it's hard to to put something in a new way because it's the same old shit that we're dealing with right <laughs> um, so that that just that meant a lot thank you.
0: Uh, I mean, I was disappointed that you didn't give me all of the answers, though. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping that you both had just been really holding out on me and that it would be. <laughs> Man, think of the money we would make if that was true, though. So Can I mean, you imagine I think, if we I- just had the, those secrets and we were just like, you're just going to
1: have to wait until the book comes out and then we'll fix sports. Like- you, you mentioned in the <laughs>
0: intro, like, this isn't going to have, like, all the answers. And I was like, darn it! <laughs>
2: Slam that book (laughs) closed. Throw it across
0: the room. Yeah. So I want to – you know, I could talk in depth about all the chapters, but we won't do that. Um, But there are a couple of chapters that are topics uh, that I have thought a lot about that I kind of wanted to discuss. And one of them is doping. And I know Jess will be thrilled Uh. because Jess always (laughs) wants to talk more about doping on Burn It All Down. (laughs)
2: This, is, this is like the behind the burn information here, which is like related directly to writing this book. Like I became obsessed with how we think about doping
0: because I was working on this book and, and that chapter. So I've always had this thing where of all the issues that, you know, is someone who wrote for, you know... Freelance for a while in the intersection of sports and social justice and then, you know, was full-time on the beat at Think Progress. All the things that I felt like in this, this space I should really care about, I did. Do you know what I mean? Like like gender equity, LGBTQ plus rights, you know, um, you know, taking money away from the owners, you know, uh, not no public investment in the stadiums. But the one thing I could never get up in arms about or really seem to care about was doping. It's just never – uh, done it for me. <laughs> like it's never been something I, um, I've ever been able to pearl clutch about. And so you do. I guess first off, and maybe I, I'll start with Jess, just because I know this topic. She, she wants to talk about this so much, but Geneva <laughs> as well. Um, you talk a little. There's there's some really interesting stuff about the first. The history of how people started using performance enhancement, uh, enhancing drugs and sports and kind of the military ties there, which I thought were fascinating, and just kind of the origin of this moral panic. And I think uh, our readers would be really interested to know kind of more about what you found when when researching the history of this. I'm like, what did I
2: find? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the hard parts of doing media of this book, it was, which is funny because Kavitha and I read this thing four different times yeah. in the spring in order to get all the edits done. Um, yeah, doping is so fascinating. I will say... I used to be real self-righteous about it. And I think part of that was living here in Austin because Mm -hmm. one of the, and I, you know, the the chapter is framed around Lance Armstrong because he is so famous for this and for holding out for so long and himself being so righteous about it. But like, I lived in a place that felt deflated when it became clear that he had lied. And like, why? why, (laughs) Like, what is it? Uh, I I used to go to a, 24-hour fitness here in Austin that was Lance Armstrong 24-hour fitness and all of the pictures on the walls were Lance Armstrong and that was like your motivation and then they had to take all of that down so you know uh, I used to be that person and now I'm the other side of like well, yeah it doesn't it, it doesn't do it for me Lindsay um but yeah it's d- the one thing I will say about doping is it does matter when it's literally harming or killing people, right? And like, that's the one that makes the sense to me when they want to regulate that. Um, And so a lot of the history of doping was people doing really wild stuff, and then just dying on in bike races, right? That's my memory. You're, yeah, Lindsay, I feel like
0: you know it better at this point than yeah, I do. It, it was, that too, but also to get more out of sol- like soldiers and yeah. stuff. It was like it was like governments and I thought that made so much sense when I read so about it. So after World
2: War yeah. II, right? Like so there yeah. was all this work around it cuz you want being a soldier is incredibly hard. Your adrenaline is pumping. You have to go go go. You don't sleep very much. A lot of the same kind of stuff, especially for endurance athletes. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense on some level that it went from that to uh, athletics. Uh, and then, of course, we went from World War II and then into the Cold War, where athletics and doping and all these sorts of things took on this nationalistic um, Cold War, where they were using athletics to to fight that. And so doping became a moral issue wrapped in nationalistic ideology. And, and I think we still can't quite unpack those things that um, really, you know, I think when you say doping, you think of East Germany. It's like to me. I don't know. I was born in 1980. Y'all are younger than me. But that's sort of what I think of. And even now with Russia and everything that happened with Sochi, which is again systemic cheating within sport. And I'm not like they should be allowed to do that. (laughs) Like that's not my (laughs) argument here. Um, But there's a way that, yeah, it, that is wild when you think about it it's to go from military into the Cold War. And then even now with whatever kind of Cold War we have now, it's still manifesting and it's that doping is playing this really critical role in all of that.
0: Yeah. And Kavita, I know you as a big baseball fan. I was wondering what your thoughts on this are. Because of course, I think the first time I heard about it was, you know, steroids and baseball. Like, you know, I mean, I, I'm not a big baseball fan, but I was, I didn't grow up. North Carolina is just not that big of a baseball place, but I was glued to the television with my dad, you know, the, the summer of Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. Like that was, I've never watched that much baseball in my life, never watched so much since. <laughs> Like it just—it really was. Well, right, I mean, and and baseball has the added
1: uh, element of being so steeped in its own tradition and history, and right? Purity so the, and purity. There's a purity, and
2: that's the, so important to doping.
1: The purity in baseball is often overstated, but you know, baseball loves to prop up its own mythology and its own, um, you know, history and traditions, and and you know. Positioning itself as the national pastime, right? So I never, I'm like, I'm with you, Lindsay. Like, it never just moved me enough to care, (laughs) to be as mad about it as I know a lot of people are. But at the same time, and maybe this is because I don't have the generations of baseball fandom behind me, right? But Mm -hmm. I remember talking to a very good friend of mine who's very progressive, and he played. He's from Louisville, so you know <laughs> baseball. Baseball's kind of a big deal down there, um, and he played baseball in college. And he basically said that um, you know he doesn't watch it anymore because he feels like he was betrayed by people doping and and by the league allowing this to happen, which is also a, a very fair thing there. And I can't argue with that, right? Like mm-hmm. I can't tell him even if I don't personally feel that way. I can't tell him that he's you know being self righteous or something, but. Um, I do think that in baseball, we have to acknowledge that baseball has never actually been as pure as we think. Um, And that's what's been really difficult for people to let go of in the, in the PD and steroid conversation. And even if we're not talking about performance enhancing drugs, which there is just a long history of greenies and amphetamines and all kinds of substances being used, um, in every era of baseball. But we're also talking about a sport that obviously didn't integrate until, uh, until 60 years ago. Um, we're also talking about a sport that has entire early eras called the dead ball era and, and, you know, uh, and, and then the home run surge after that, where like, spitballs were just a thing. Gaylord Perry is in the Hall of Fame, and his most famous pitch was an illegal pitch. Um, so I think that it's just really hard for people to let go of the the, the notions uh, that harken back to nostalgia. And it's, you know, the same way that it's really difficult for people of a certain generation to criticize America um, during World War II, during, you know, it, at a time when we were upholding ourselves as the righteous part of the world um and obviously fighting on the the side of good in in that particular war but the same way that it's difficult for people to criticize America under those pretenses it's really difficult for people to understand to to admit that this thing that they claim to have been pure for its entirety existence really has never been pure so you know if Barry Bonds is not in the Hall of Fame um But Gaylord Perry is, for example, that is that's an inconsistency. Yeah.
2: And I will just say one thing I learned doing the doping stuff was uh, around Balco, which was that uh, what are you laboratory clinic Mm -hmm. in the Bay Area that um I just assumed it was all baseball players. Like that was my that was my memory of it because probably cuz how the media reported it. I'm not sure, but like there were so many football players and just another example of like where we care and where we don't and that that really is arbitrary in a lot of ways that I think we have to reckon with if if someone wants to be self-righteous about doping, they have there are things like that that they really need to to come to terms with if they're, if they're going to feel that way about it.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, for me, it's always just comes back to just this concept of fairness in sports and, um, how, like, I do understand I have friends or not really friends, but people I've gotten to know through this work, you know, who competed against, um, you know, Russians in the Olympics when they were doping and who are, you know, now in these, um, clean sports, you know, committees and everything like that. And I understand that. Like, I understand feeling um jilted by by that and i mean that program they had in Sochi with like the cutting the hole in the lap like that's <laughs> just like it's one of the most bizarre things i've ever read about what was the in my it was icarus. Icarus,
2: icarus where they yeah. do the great graphics of it. if you haven't watched icarus just just to see the graphics of how they moved the the pea samples or whatever they were
0: through the buildings was fantastic it's very good and it starts with the concept of this guy this kind of I mean he's a good athlete but like regular kind of good athlete being like how how much can he doping dopes. help me. Yeah. <laughs> and like he just like purposely doping which I loved cuz it didn't start from the sanctimonious like yeah. Place. Yeah, yeah, yeah it just kind of started with like let's see what <laughs> this is all about like uh, and and I kind of love that. But I do want to say yes, obviously we should say safety first. There's yeah. thing like of course with steroids and you see with like the wrestlers and everything like well, you know. I, I don't
1: think that yeah. Everybody, like none of us are pro doping. Yeah. Right? Like none of us yeah. are like, yeah, that's just that's a really great element to add to our sports. I think that we all like we all want to strive for fairness in sport. We all want to strive for you know no cheating, whether that's performance enhancing drugs or banging a trash can. Um, but but I think that that just because we want to strive for fairness and no cheating. That doesn't mean that we can't forgive the people who have cheated, or we can't somehow get over get over that,
0: right? I mean, I and kind of to- buy
2: Lance Armstrong's point that like everyone was doing it because they were all doing it. That's and how I so, feel about
0: Alex Rodriguez too, like, yeah. I'm just so like, it's yeah, very like-, like
2: I don't know if I'm like yay you cheated, but at the same time I kind of buy that argument, and I don't know where to put that as a fan, but I do think that that's something if we're gonna be fans that we have well to i think, think that, through. i right? think
1: that that's one of those issues that you know we talk about a lot of issues in the book where we expose how unfair we are to individual athletes athletes instead of the systems in which they exist and instead of the teams um and the leagues and frankly i think that most of our anger is directed toward individual baseball players and not mlb and yeah. mlb knew this was happening and and you know, it was good for the game. So, right? You know, right. I, I think that that's you know these are the kinds of questions that we're asking fans to think about.
0: Yeah, it's very uh, it's very complex and very interesting. It's another point. So, you know, we always talk about sports as you know, this distraction, right, from the real world, a lot of people like to use it as as, this distraction. And, but at the same time, it also gives everyone a common frame of reference to talk about issues or to study issues or to raise awareness of issues that people like to um, don't like to talk about. And one of those was in one of your early chapters about concussions. um, We're talking about how like, the research about concussions that is done for football players and for the NFL, how much that has helped people who are, you know, in car accidents and in, you know, all these other things that can't raise money for research, right? That can't get that attention. And it, for, I don't know, for it just, I just been thinking about that a lot for the past couple of days about how there's just this dichotomy of when we care about things and when we don't. And, and Kavith, I guess, why do you think sports, even though we we say a lot of people don't want us to talk about those things in sports at the same time it does give us an in it does give you uh, um a maybe a common language or a passion to address tough topics at times well
1: sports have always reflected where we are in a cultural or societal moment where we are in our history um you know there's it's it's not a coincidence that baseball integrated, you know, five to 10 years before the civil rights movement really, um, you know, gained steam. Um, So, but I also think that sports are supposed to be such a pure meritocracy, um, that, you know, it allows you to kind of navigate through all of the more complex topics, because the actual, like, playing of the sport is very straightforward. There is a winner and a loser. Mm-hmm. There is a higher score and a lower score. You know, like, it's it's very tangible in that way. Um,
0: you know, I've always kind of – I'm sorry, I love your dog so much. <laughs> He's
1: like uh, – He is uh,
0: very much having – He is very mad at me right now for not being outside with him.
1: <laughs> um, but I think also, you know, what you said is sports also – It's – Sports also – they're a way for us to engage with people that we wouldn't normally engage with if we weren't all fans of the same team, right? like I mean, I have plenty of sports fan friends, I have plenty of friends who are fans of the teams that I root for that we didn't go to the same colleges and you know we don't we didn't grow up in the same neighborhoods. We probably wouldn't be friends if it weren't for these things, so it allows us to start those conversations with people that we definitely wouldn't be having those heavy level of conversations with
0: yeah do you think that add to that jess yeah um
2: this is going to sound weird when i say it especially to this group but there's it's almost easier to have some of these conversations when we talk about them through sports even though we know how hard it can be to still have those conversations when you do it through sport but like you said there's something about like i'm thinking about what you just said about brain trauma after car crashes versus to NFL players. And while we probably all know people who've been in car crashes or we've been in car crashes, but like how many people do we really know who've had brain trauma associated with it versus we all watch, well, not all, but a lot of us watch the NFL and we understand how to have a conversation around brain trauma in that space just from all viewing the same thing at the same time. I mean... Now is even different because we have social media, so there will be a horrible hit and it'll just be everything that's everyone's talking about on my timeline for the next 30 minutes until they move on to the next thing. But still, there's a conversation about it, whereas we're not having that around brain trauma in other parts of our society, right? Um, The one thing I'll add about that is... uh, I, I, I'm i really sure that we use Lindsay's work at Think Progress in this part of the chapter, but uh, that it's gendered then, right? So we do have all this work around brain trauma, and it's mainly around men because we mainly do it around the NFL and soldiers, and we leave out domestic violence victims and female athletes and all kinds of women who struggle with brain trauma. So that's the, the downside of, of where we put our attention, but I, I do think... There's something easier about it in sports, yeah, it, which feels
1: strange to say out loud. It's like even <laughs> that the, the inequality candy, the <laughs> but even that inequality just highlights highlights the inequality that exists in brain trauma research overall. My my, I've thought about this a lot um, after, especially after reading and, and working on that part of that chapter. Um, my my mother is a neuropathologist and we talked very recently about something that we had never really talked about before which is how when she was coming up getting her phd she was only learning anatomy on male cadavers she was only taught male biology as the standard basically and you know my again my mother studies studies uh neuropathology she studies the brain so you know that that dissonance isn't just that's, that dissonance is something that we discuss when it comes to male athletes versus female athletes but that absolutely exists when it just comes to medicine
0: women being studied and just <laughs> yeah. medicine and general yeah. yeah, yeah I gotta say you did use my work there and it is it feels good to have a piece that I think maybe 500 people read if I remember the chart beat stats <laughs> Because I remember Which, working very hard on that piece, and it disappeared from chart beat immediately, and was uh, at the bottom of the uh, of the things. And then to have good. it to have very it come good. back, it, it was good. I was I was impressed with myself. <laughs> five years later, <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, so let's kind of tie this all into what we're seeing now with. Um, the athlete protest and what we've seen this last week. Um, First of all, everyone should go check out the hot take that Jessica did with Amir Rose Davis and some of um, her other academia friends who are amazing about the athlete strikes that we've seen in this past week. Um, But to me, it makes so much sense that we're seeing athletes – recognize their power as we reckon with race in the country and one of the most real ways um, we have in a while. And because racism is so much the root of so many of these inequities that we deal with within sports. Um, You all really focus on, you know, athletes rights during your chapter about the NCAA and March Madness. And I just want to know for both of you, um, do you see these um what we've seen this summer in the NBA and the WNBA with players um you know deciding to sit out for games um because um after you know the police shot Jake Jacob Blake and um you know demanding more attention to that you know we're starting to see NFL teams cancel practice to um you know have discussions over this and talk about what they can do as organizations Do you see that entering the college space? And do you think that's going to impact um, what we're seeing, you know, in college athletics? And, of course, this all ties into coronavirus, too, because we've seen more organization from athletes. And I know, Kavitha, you've talked about this on your podcast. We've seen more organization from college athletes, especially college football players, um, because of the lack of COVID protocols and everything this summer. So it just seems like athletes are uh, young athletes are really recognizing their power. Kavitha?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We're seeing that change and that shift um, among the younger generations. Jessica always brings this up. um, And this might be the only thing that I'm more optimistic than she about. (laughs) Um, But Jessica always brings up rightfully that the problem with movements in college sports is that there's so much turnover, you just, you know, you're done after three or four years, and then you just get a new crop of of kids and athletes in there. But I also think that, you know, the way that we we see 14 year old gun, you know, gun control activists and climate change activists right now, every successive generation, for the most part, becomes more politically aware, becomes more progressive and all of that. And I think that we are definitely seeing that bearing fruit in in the NCAA. We're also seeing, you know. We're, we're seeing the support on the legislative level, obviously, the nil rights bill um, that was originally introduced by California Governor Gavin Newsom that's spreading throughout the country, um, that kind of thing. And that just reflects how public sentiment has also changed. If you look at any poll from even just five years ago, the majority of Americans did not think that players deserve to be compensated in any way. And now that has shifted. Um, but. You've also got, we've also gone through an entire summer where these athletes, professional and college, have been told for five now going on six months, just how much they're worth to us, that we, you know, how much money is, is these these leagues and these teams set to lose from their broadcasting deals, how many jobs are dependent on them taking the field. So even when that happens in the college space, you now have a bunch of 18, 19 and 20 year olds who are who have been told for five months that they are monetarily valuable to their universities. And, you know, I think we all obviously knew that. But now they're like, okay, you know, if these systems and these universities and these institutions are acknowledging that to us, let's turn that into actual material games. And we're obviously seeing that with the push for college athletes to unionize, we're seeing that, for their calls for you know better health care and better safety protocols on campus and everything. But we also saw that on an individual level um, across campuses demanding statues come down, demanding racial justice. There was a player for Ole Miss who said that he was going to sit out the season if Mississippi didn't change its state flag. Um, and they did. And it they worked. did very it's fast. It's this really incredible thing, um, and I don't think that it's overstating it to say how much of a role he played in that. So, yeah, I, I I do think that you know the the genie's kind of out of the bottle when it comes to this. I can't imagine college athletes regressing, taking two steps back from from the steps that they've taken forward just this year.
2: I'm interested. I I always. Whether or not it's fair, I do think college football sort of is a good benchmark for what's going to happen, right? Um, And I will say, I saw that on Thursday, Mississippi State boycotted their practice, and it made Mike Leach of all people have to come out and say that he supported them missing practice in order to raise awareness for racial injustice. And do I think that Mike Leach suddenly like feels deeply about these issues? I mean. I don't know. I guess we could all make our own decisions about that. But I do think thinking about like if this affects college football recruitment, if college football coaches have to figure out how to uh, navigate their way through this in order to continue to recruit the best black players around the country. Those are ways that could lead to real material change. Right. Um, Because those coaches have big pocketbooks and they care very deeply for them. And so I don't know, there is a part of me I am cynical. I do worry about, like Kavitha said, the fact that they're only there for so long, and it's a huge risk. They don't have any rights really as um athletes uh and in, in college. And so especially if they're trying to get to the next level, they're really risking a lot. And and it's hard to ask nineteen year olds to do that. Um and then they're gone, right? So then you have to, you're always starting over in that space. But man, the idea that Mike Leach is out here talking about the importance of racial justice uh, is, you know, how did we get here? I don't know. It seemed to happen very fast. And if that can happen, I don't know, maybe one day we'll get Dabo saying something, and then I'll just have to go lay down on the floor. I don't know. But (laughs) it does seem like that's possible at this point. And if they have to do it in order to recruit these players and they're going to do it and that might really matter as far as the sustaining of this kind of stuff of this movement we're seeing well
1: and and that's exactly right and every reporter that I have talked to has said listen we can we can sit here and talk about whether these coaches actually believe in what they're saying but at the end of the day you know I have a sports business background if If the action is there, I kind of don't really care about the motivation. You know, I don't think that Nike suddenly woke up and decided that Black Lives Matter. I think that Nike recognized it was good for their business to embrace this movement, um, which is fine, honestly. Um, And we have heard from a lot of of reporters that um, the ability to continue to recruit top level black talent, as Jessica said, is a huge concern here what's also i think going to keep this movement building is that we are seeing real challenges um, from particularly the nba putting a huge investment in their g league and actually positioning the g league to supersede college for mm. high school athletes who want to who want to end up in the pros um, so it's going to be i mean that's very much in its nascency but it's going to be interesting to see what what um, what effect that has, but at the very least, it it keeps the it keeps the pressure on the NCAA to continue to evolve.
0: Yeah, I completely. Uh, I, I do think the G League. I hope the coronavirus doesn't really (laughs) ruin what the G League has going because I know there's already questions about, um, you know, when the G League will be able to come back. But talking with a bunch of WNBA players, you know, they're saying that, you know, yeah, if they were a recruit right now and the recruits they're talking to right now are paying attention to what these college coaches are saying, you know. Yeah, absolutely. and are flocking to programs that have. We've had a lot of black female. Not a lot. A lot is a big exaggeration. But I think it was something like four of the five most prominent openings in women's college basketball this this off season. Like in the big schools, were filled by black female former players, and that is huge. And you saw them that it's helped them a lot in recruiting. And I think you're going to see more and more of these young athletes wanting to go to schools where they're coached by someone who understands the trauma they're experiencing and who supports them in using their voice. And I think, you know, that's going to be a game changer. To kind of wrap things up, let's talk a little bit about how this this goes into ownership and all that stuff because you wrote a big chapter about, you know, dealing with all this stuff when you don't love your owner. And let's see in this last week, you know, to make things a little current, you know, we've we've gotten a lot more information about Kelly Leffler and how, you know, before – she can't go into politics. Nobody saw this side of her, right? Like that she was really into basketball. And I think the reporting this week has just made it more and more transparent how much she's just using this, right? Like how much she's using her team in order to gain power. It almost makes it ickier for me that she didn't – that these aren't her true beliefs. <laughs> like for, like it just – it makes it ickier, you know? And then, of course, we have Del Loy the owner of the Utah Royals and the um, – uh, Salt Lake. Yes, Utah Salt Lake and in yeah. um, in MLS In WSL. <laughs> yeah, in Utah and, and the Athletic did great reporting Sorry. over, <laughs> uh, you know, over the Athletic they did great reporting on his Shout racist out to history. Linehan
1: and our whole soccer team. Amazing.
0: Yeah. I mean, and he just announced today that he's. We're recording this on Sunday that he is releasing his shares. Um, we've had, you know, all, more reporting on how bad Dan Snyder is, and you know he finally um announce the name do you think this tipping point that we're seeing head to coaches that we're seeing give athletes more power do we think this is going to change the demands on ownership groups hmm. and maybe change models going forward kavitha i hope so <laughs> <laughs> this is where you know that
1: slight flash of optimism goes right out the window <laughs> um, i hope so but you know, when have we ever seen billionaires reform? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, our, our system's just not built for it. Our politics aren't built for it. I think that the most you can hope for is, is, you know, slight steps forward. And I think that, you know, what the Milwaukee Bucks are started um, to have NBA players demand from their owners is, is, is a way that we can get actual change. I've been thinking about this a lot in, in context of the Bucks. Um, who are owned by Mark Lasry, who is a known, you know, longtime Clinton donor and supporter. So, um, you know, not um, among the more progressive politically owners that exist in professional sports. But at the same time, you know, what is he doing with his money to help these social causes? Right. And I always think about the fact that, you know, Scott Walker, the governor of of Wisconsin, gave the Milwaukee Bucks owners $400 million to build their new arena. And, you know, they clearly wield enough political influence. All owners do because we have a whole stadium subsidy chapter as well. But if you can wield enough political influence to get hundreds of millions of dollars in stadium subsidies from your government, you wield enough political influence to enact police reform. Like you just can't, you can't tell me that that's not a thing. So I think that players using their voice to force those kinds of changes from owners is, is where I would be more optimistic about seeing that happen. Um, because frankly, like Dan Snyder still owns a team <laughs> and, you know, we have Del Hansen kind of going the Donald Sterling route, but we've got plenty of other owners in professional sports who are problematic. Um, who don't actually go that route. So I hope I mean, I hope we continue to see power being held accountable. But, you know, we don't have that at the highest levels of power (laughs) in our country right now. So I don't know why we would expect that out of our sports teams.
0: Yeah, it's only going to come if these athletes push it, unfortunately. And, you know, that's what we've seen this week. I mean, I just keep thinking about how the DeVos family owns <laughs> your the Orlando magic. magic, and it's just like you know. I mean, there really are. There's like 50 of these bridge people, and they all know each other, and they can all influence each other. Tillman, Fertitta, <laughs> and the Houston Rockets.
1: Yeah, um, you know, it's yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, Start on Jerry Jones, like mm.
0: Jess.
2: I don't know if I have anything to add to that. I will say. I'll just do a burn it all down plug. We did talk about ownership in the last episode we actually Mm -hmm. recorded back episode 169. And I just keep thinking about how the US does it differently. It's not that there aren't owners in other parts of the world, but a lot of different places don't have this kind of hierarchy and structure to their professional organizations. And... I don't know, like, it, that seems far away and hard. And like, how do we ever get there? Because like, be this, I mean, you're going up against billionaires who like their sports. But I do just keep thinking it's, there it's are other ways, welfare. right? Like, there are other ways to do this and that are better. And I will say one thing, in the final chapter, which is all about athlete activism, there, there's a section in that chapter that's about how the government love sports for propaganda these rich people love sports for propaganda like it's not just like that's a platform for donald trump to walk out before the college football championship game and let everyone cheer for him god he loved that so much like it was so gross and you (laughs) could see exactly how sports works in that way that platform that way too so it is hard to imagine how this changes uh because of the amount of money and because sports is a conservative space and it works it likes to be the same all the time that's it's like always operating it's always trying to be the same all the time and i don't know yeah i feel cynical about that one but i am really happy about what's happening in utah and maybe this is i you know jj watt was out on twitter today defending women's sports as like a good thing in the world talking about buying offering to be an investor. Yeah, I was like, okay, let's do this. Let's do this. <laughs> so I don't know. It, we'll see. We'll see. It's it's what it's we need. W- and
0: I've got I've got a Q&A coming up in PowerPlays this week with one of the with Jenny Gilder, one of the owners of the Seattle Storm. And you know, one of the things she talks about is how could we can we do this? Differently in women's sports. Do you know what I mean? Like in women's sports, is there an opportunity still to not yeah, get not get stuck in the same yes. owner versus player? And, and you know, she talked a lot about about it hmm. in CBA negotiations and not wanting to be so owner versus player because they're all you know more on the same page. Um, and most WNBA owners are not billionaires. Yeah, they not really. the same
2: kind of money. It's right, not the right. same so kind you're of not money. Operating. Huh, that's yeah. That is super interesting. And I I said yeah. this before when we've talked about Leffler on another thing. Um there is something just Leffler in particular is so shocking because it just seems like in people who support women sports tend to lean to the left. Like just being a women's sports fan and supporter tends to be a progressive move because that's not the normal in sports. So the conservative thing is to not want women to be in sports. And so I don't know. They're just always... um, Jen Doyle wrote that piece about Caster Semenya that Mm. is so brilliant. And she talks in that piece about how women's sports is where we break all the rules. This is like... Mm. This is the place where things get rewritten and we can think differently. And that's part of what's so upsetting around everything around Caster. But... I think about that a lot, that there is this power within women's sports because it is just fundamentally different, just its existence. And so yeah, the idea that you don't need all that money to be running women's sports because it's just not well, the same thing.
1: I mean, I yeah, I, I I'll never I'll never say that like the WNBA doesn't want to be making the same kind of money that the NBA well, yeah. is making right now, right? Sure. But but there is absolutely something about being able to be a disruptor in your space because you are not beholden to the same, um, the same financial circumstances, right? Um, there's just there's more room to break shit, which is like a favorite phrase in Silicon Valley. But but there is. Um, and if you think about how radical what the what the Milwaukee Bucks did and what what NBA players are doing right now, Maya Moore sat out two seasons in a Hall of Fame career to do this, and she, you know, I think she people did commend her but it didn't seem like as radical a thing as as when the Milwaukee Bucks walk out of a playoff game because of the money and the attention and the eyeballs involved but at the same time she sets that stage we don't have um the Bucks happening without a Maya Moore happening and Maya Moore probably isn't able to do that if she's if she's making seven times more money or if the television contracts are as big as they are in the NBA so yeah I mean it it's like like jessica said it is wild to me that someone who who exists within that paradigm thinks the way that Kelly Loeffler does. Yeah,
0: it's it's wild. And, you know, we're seeing this weekend with Athletes Unlimited getting launched, a new women's sports league that's kind of, it's a completely different ownership model where players are kind of involved. There are no really team owners. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we're just going to have to see. I think that it's, it's the one space that gives me, I think, hope for the future of sports <laughs> in general. Although, of course, I'm excited about the future of a lot of men's sports, too. All right. Going to give you both the last word just on what the book means to you and why why people should go go grab it. Uh, Jess? Yeah. Uh, it does
2: feel like, what does it mean to me? Um, it's, it's really fun to see it all together because it is all these different things that I work on a lot. I mean, it does feel in a lot of ways like burn it all down in a book. Um, it's these things <laughs> that we care a lot about and we talk about on the show. I feel like the fact that I was doing the show while working on the book was good. The book is better because I was on this show talking to you all every single week and thinking through these issues. And I just hope that people, especially people that are listening to this podcast, listening to Burn All Down, I hope when you all read it that you just feel seen, that like you're like, "Oh, yes, there are other people who love sports like I do and you can still be critical of it and and love it. Like that being critical is part of love and and that we all just I don't know, be that I really love sports. Um,
1: and I think, I hope that all of that comes through. Yeah, we, yeah, I mean, exactly that. We really love sports. We want to be able to enjoy them in the same way that everyone else seems to be able to, right? Um, but you know, exactly what Jessica just said. I, I hope that readers realize they're not the only ones who go through this. And I, I also hope that, you know, one of the things in writing this, this book, um, that I I learned was just to be kinder to myself about having these dilemmas, but still turning the television on, you know? Um, and I, you know, we don't want to be preachy. We don't want to make fans feel bad about themselves. We don't want to tell you that you're bad people because you recognize that some of these, these bad things exist, but you still can't, you know, completely boycott, (laughs) um, for lack of a better way to put it. So yeah, I just hope that people, that people find community in it, that people find some comfort in it. And I hope that some shit actually changes. <laughs> Maybe um, Jessica's always saying, you know, we could fix sports if they would just listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> if you just do, do you all just of the things to. that we're, you know, yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, we, we really, really, really do love sports. And, uh, and I hope that that
0: comes through as well. It does. And, um, yeah, I just congratulations both of you. I know how hard you worked on this. It's so exciting uh, to see it all together, and you know, I think it's something that will be used as a guidebook for sports fans going forward. I really, really do, um, because of the way it lays out all these different issues, and you know, I think this is this is how we get progress, right? The only way you can, you, you know. If if you had to have all the – I hate when people say you can't be critical unless you have all the answers. And it's like that's just like not how progress works. Like that's just like not how anything has ever,
1: ever worked. Um, There's also never been just a singular methodology toward progress. You know, right? Like the civil rights movement has 20 different, you know, strains of how to go about this even if the end – result is the desired end result is the same. So
0: yeah, I always think of Katie Nolan, I think in one of her videos a while back being like, they want me to turn off the NFL, like they want to, you know, but I want to stay in it and be critical of it, because I love it. You know, I want to stay tuned in, because I love it. And I don't think that they deserve to be able to kick me out, right? Like, no, I'm going to stay here and keep holding you accountable for these things. And well, the only the only way that the status quo actually
1: changes is to have people like us and Katie in the industry doing that work, because frankly, the, the the only reason that sports and that any industry is allowed to maintain um, its, its terrible practices for as long as they do is because the same people have been in charge. So
0: I yeah, think, I think, you know, we're starting to see different voices are being heard. And this young, the younger generation gives me hope. All right, flamethrowers. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back next Tuesday. We'll be back to recording regular episodes. And we're excited to have the whole group back together. Uh, although actually, I probably won't be on that episode. But you know, <laughs> we'll all be together soon. I promise. Um, and we hope you've enjoyed all the special episodes throughout the month of August. We've had so many wonderful uh, guest interviews and been able to showcase so many guest podcasts. And thank you know, kicking this off this month of September off with Jasmine Kavitha is the perfect way. So uh hope you all are hanging in there. Hope you had a good August and we will talk to you next week. Bye.